On today's episode, I talked to Dr. Bonnie Etherington. Dr. Etherington earned her PhD in English from Northwestern University. She's at work on a book manuscript titled One Salt Water, Writing the Pacific Ocean in Contemporary Indigenous Protest Literatures. And her work is forthcoming in the Contemporary Pacific and recently published in New Oceania, Modernisms and Modernities in the Pacific. Her first fiction novel, The Earth Cries Out, was shortlisted for the William Soroyan International Prize for Writing and longlisted for the Occam New Zealand Book Awards. She now teaches literature for the School of Pacific Arts, Communication, and Education at the University of the South Pacific in Suva, Fiji. On this episode, Dr. Etherington and I talk the role of environmental activism and literature in countering the settler violence at root of contemporary coastal and oceanic crises. So hi, Bonnie. Thank you for joining me today um, on this podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you about some of your work and a bit about coastal erosion and coasts. Um, So you're a literary scholar like myself. And so I thought it would be uh, interesting for people to hear from a perspective, not my own, what the field we kind of work in is and how you would describe your own research or work within that field. Thanks, um, Alison, I'm really happy to be here. Um, So yes, I work primarily in the field of literary studies, um, though I have also really enjoyed being a part of interdisciplinary humanities research over the last few years. Um, So I generally say that my research focuses on uh, contemporary protest poetry, fiction and and art created by Indigenous authors from Oceania. Um, And so while the islands of Oceania, also known as the Pacific Islands, are regularly promoted as tourist paradises and used uh, for military test sites, I'm investing in the ways that Indigenous authors intervene in US and Eurocentric discourses of the Pacific. Um, My research really shows how their literatures represent the Pacific as a place defined by Indigenous peoples and their relationships with each other and with other oceanic beings. And here I'm including human and non-human beings in that category. Um, And these representations in turn gesture towards possible futures for indigenous peoples in the face of political, cultural and environmental exploitation. And so I kind of argue that reading these authors together shows that their literatures are not just responses to colonialism. Mm -hmm. They're part of creating coalitions of ocean-centered activism that privilege indigenous narratives and transnational networks of the Pacific. Um, and that while they navigate uh, the tension of the ocean as an exploited place on the one hand and a place of home and identity on the other. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's so amazing to talk to someone who's working in, you know, some contemporary literature and activist literature and protest literature like yourself. Because I think sometimes, you know, in fields like environmental humanities, we get environmental history and literary studies. You know, a lot of people study uh, earlier time periods and give kind of context through that. So it's so exciting to talk to someone where you can see, you know, literature is still happening and people are out there interpreting and uh, using literary studies to kind of, you know, 
make an impact or bring light to a lot of the issues, especially climate change issues at hand. So it's very yeah. interesting that work. Yeah. So I was wondering what brought you to this line of work. So you kind of focus on the ocean as well. So what brought you to both, you know, this contemporary literature and also just oceans? Uh, so I, as you might be able to tell from my accent, <laughs> I'm originally <laughs> from New Zealand. Um, my research in this field, uh, it's really emerged from my experiences growing up in West Papua. Um, so part of the time in West Papua, and uh, for those of you who don't know, West Papua is um, the west side of the island of New Guinea, which is um, currently occupied um, by Indonesia. Um, so there we lived inland in a place called Kobakma, and my research there was uh, deeply influenced by being in that area as a young child and sitting in my father's mother tongue literacy classes and hearing elders tell stories to their children and their grandchildren in their own language. So I guess in those classes, I really learned about the power of stories to pass on Indigenous knowledge in the face of immense obstacles, including genocide. And after I left Papua for my undergraduate studies in New Zealand, um, I noticed that Papua was frequently misrepresented in books and news articles as isolated or violent or very specifically not modern. And I was really, really angry about this. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, as an undergraduate, you're trying to find ways to express that frustration, right? Um, and so for me, I wrote a novel out of um, my frustration at those limiting narratives. And I see my scholarly research as another way of trying to extend this work. And in this case, I situate the creative activism coming out of Papua is just one vital part of wider networks of Indigenous-centred activism in the Pacific. And to bring oceans into that, uh, while attending school in Papua, specifically high school, we also lived on the coast. Um, and I used to go swimming near a bay called Tanamera. And I didn't know at that time that decades before Allied and Japanese forces clashed heavily in that same bay. So each year the reefs diminished, fishermen would submerge dynamite and it was attached um, primarily to old US World War II munitions, um, which were just dumped by the US after they finished their operations there. And the fishermen um, would blow up the corals before collecting the bodies of fish that floated upwards. So they practiced this method of fishing in numerous areas and it was heartbreaking um, to see that destruction wrought on the reefs um, and to traditional fishing practices. Um, and these combined experiences alerted me to the ongoing devastation of uh, colonialism in Indigenous lands and waters at numerous different scales. But the experience of seeing Indigenous communities resisting this devastation through stories, um, for me, it, it offered frameworks for how they face enormous environmental and political challenges. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I was wondering if you could tell a little bit about that book that you wrote, because that's <laughs> such a wonderful response to write a book. You know, it, you say it like it's a small feat, but it is quite a big feat to have done. So... Thank you. Um, I actually, it's called The Earth Cries Out. Um, it's published by Penguin Random House New Zealand in 2017. Um, and I wrote the first half during my master's degree in New Zealand. Um, and then when I started my PhD, 
I wasn't really feeling like myself with all the coursework and the qualifying exams. So the year of my first qualifying exam, we had two different ones. Um, I uh, try to kind of take back my time in a way by being like, I'm going to write a thousand words of the story a day. I'm yeah. just going to do it. It's going to be terrible. I'm going to oh. do it anyway. So I did it. Um, and then I had a card from a wonderful editor in New Zealand who had heard the first paragraph of the book once. And she said to send it her way when I was done. So I sent it, not expecting anything at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she wrote back in, in an hour. Wow. <laughs> um, so I know that's not really the traditional way things are published. Um, she had heavy edits for it at first. Um, and I think as a young writer, I felt very overwhelmed by that. But I was like, this book's born out of frustration and rage over what I've seen happening in Papua. I'm going to finish it. Um just do my best uh and I did and yeah so published it which was it was a weird experience and I probably don't recommend doing that in the year of your qualifying <laughs> yeah that's amazing uh so I guess I'm wondering kind of based off that too um how would you describe your approach to coasts and shorelines yeah because you know you wrote this creative work and you've talked mm-hmm. about you know the power of storytelling that you've mm-hmm. observed, but I'm wondering, you know, how that interacts with then scholarly work as we kind of see it. Does that approach mm-hmm. to coastlines or shorelines come in differently in kind of a literary analysis type of project or work? Yeah. Um, so initially, a lot of the book focused on uh, the lower highlands because that's where I was as a young child. Um, but then as I brought in I included these little, what I called plant voices, because I wasn't sure of another term for them, the little vignettes um, told by plants in that area. Um, And um, through, I tried to bring in different perspectives of seeing the land and seeing uh, the ocean through these little vignettes. Um, And a lot of people may see coasts and shorelines as places of border or separation or liminal spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the case of an island, a lot of people see the coast as the edge of the island. Um, But I I draw my interpretations from numerous, numerous authors from Oceania, um, uh, such as uh, the founding fathers of Oceania studies, Epili Haofa and Albert Mm -hmm. Wendt. Um, They really challenged this interpretation so, however, in particular, he wrote that the name the Pacific Islands has been used by colonizers in a way that corresponds to the idea of islands in a far sea in contrast to what he describes as Oceania's sea of islands. Mm-hmm. So the way he's framed his language there, he's asking us to remap how we see the Pacific in our imaginations by changing the language with which we use to describe it. So the Pacific Islands suggest that the islands are isolated and scattered mm-hmm. without relationships to other islands and they're like little bits of land. Whereas Oceania as a sea of islands pushes against these colonial narratives um, of isolation and smallness by suggesting interconnection um, between indigenous peoples and their ecologies. So in Hawafa's perspective, Oceania is very large, it's not scattered fragments. Um, and this perspective really matters. It mattered to me in my scholarship and to, in my novel. And I see how it's 
integral to so many of the writers I write about um, because it shows that the effects of exploitation, such as climate change in Oceania, which include coastal erosion, um, rising seas, drought, etc., are not far removed from the rest of the world. And it also suggests that the exploitation in the ocean doesn't only affect scattered islands, but it affects interconnected spaces. So what happens to one affects the other, um, if that makes sense. Um, and I mean, drawing from how I approach, I also ground my research specifically um, in a, as a top person or Melanesian pigeon term, which is one salt water. Mm -hmm. So one salt water translates as one salt water or one ocean, one people. It's a specifically activist term. Um, and my research tries to show how different forms of indigenous protests um, that bring together multiple communities in Oceania take up this concept as they enact uh, decolonial practices for islands, including their coasts and shorelines. Um, so I find that this term gives me useful vocabulary for expressing the artistic and literary activist work occurring in and constituting recent and contemporary Indigenous protest movements in the Pacific. So it becomes a useful way to talk about, uh, it allows us to be like, okay, we're going to talk about Indigenous literary texts in conversation with each other rather than just, than just talking about an Indigenous literary text in response to a colonial text or a mm -hmm. colonial narrative paradigm um, and it asks what Pacific histories and futures look like if we start not end or tack on indigenous imaginings of them rather than just defaulting to US or other imperial visions yeah that's I mean that's so wonderful and I I feel like I've seen in your work you know this focus on resisting uh, certain mappings of spaces <laughs> Um, especially in relation to like the, you know, either Eurocentric, American centric, mm -hmm. um, or continental centered kind of mapping schema. And yeah, I guess I'm wondering if, you know, mapping and coastlines come together in any interesting ways for you. You already talked about, you know, there's this tendency to separate land and sea mm -hmm. um, but I was wondering if you could talk about yeah how maps come into play or mapping yeah um so the literary texts that I'm really interested in um they show that representations of spaces um through all kinds of texts and here they're very much including maps and um seem to be always pushing against uh Eurocentric or US-centric uh, versions of maps. Um, they circulate, they all all the different maps um, circulate ideas about peoples and places and things, and they make historical claims mm. about who belongs in a place, which um, can obviously have very, very real um, repercussions. Uh, so uh, an author who... Uh, I adore, um, is uh, Craig Santos Perez. Mm -hmm. um, he's Chamorro from Guahan, also known as Guam. And um, he actually writes these poems, that, uh, they're visual poems, like he calls them poem maps. Mm -hmm. um, and they combine poetry with different mapping techniques. And he might have one that maps up the, maps out the uh, sonic impact of, um, US uh, 
military, uh, what are they called? <laughs> military exercises in mm-hmm. the Pacific. Um, or is another one that uh, includes different routes of uh, Spanish and Portuguese ships in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he has an incredible poem um, that begins one of his books that talks about how he struggled to articulate where he was from mm. in a class that was not in Guam. Um, and he's like, I'm, I'm from Guam. And it didn't appear on, I'm doing a very bad paraphrase of this, but it didn't, uh, Guam didn't appear on the map. So where do mm. you say that you're from if you don't, if you're not appearing on the map, which um, so often Pacific Islands are just represented as tiny little dots. Um, which again corresponds to the description of the Pacific Islands that Apili however was pushing back against earlier. Um, and then, or does he describe that he's from, you know, a US territory? That's a kind of mapping, it's a kind of imposition of like, it, it documents the borders of uh, Guam space in another way that it's, it's occupied for military testing purposes. Um, so, yeah, maps are really important my work. And um, I was very, I've been very new to learning about maps <laughs> as I've come into this work. And I, I really enjoy continuing to add to my knowledge in that area. Yeah, I, I mean, Craig Santos Perez is one of my also <laughs> favorite poets, current poets, um, writing, especially about climate change, just some of the most incredible poems yeah. I've read. Um, and used to, you know, teach classes as well. And I guess all another yeah. question, you know, we're talking about mapping and poetry that's kind of, you know, drawing on mapping. So I guess a question I have is, you know, can literary studies bring a different understanding or, you know, what is it about literature that allows us to uh, approach these topics or, you know, that just mm-hmm. adds something different, I guess, to the conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, just to backtrack slightly, <laughs> I completely agree with you that teaching Perez's work in yeah. class is so great because there's so many things for students to draw on and mm-hmm. things that they might not be familiar with, things that they do feel slightly familiar with or can um, take on different ways and things they feel really familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. So I find them especially useful um, yeah, across all the class levels. <laughs> yeah. Um, so thinking about um, literary studies and um, what that can do to, um, to bring an understanding to different coastal or ocean problems um, today. Um, so my research just has really shown me that narratives, whether they're told through poems or maps mm-hmm. or novels or many other different forms of story that we are privileged enough to have access to are integral to confronting issues that face our oceans and our relationships with the ocean today. Um, I'm thinking as an example here that especially of, so in 1946, obviously the US dropped the first of multiple nuclear bombs on um, Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. Um, An E. Kiribati scholar, Teresia, Teewa writes about how U.S. narratives about the Marshall Islands effectively completely erase that nuclear history by telling stories of tropical paradises. Um, 
for example, we could think of SpongeBob's bikini bottom, um, uh, which a scholar, Holly Barker, recently wrote uh, a few years ago, wrote an article about and experienced enormous backlash um, from writing that article. Um, but Tewa calls these narratives, um, including how Americans started calling a swimsuit a bikini, um, a deliberate, um, it's a strategic form of national, what she calls forgetting. Mm. Um, so while the people of bikini, they still can't return home to their devastated land and waters, um, US companies, on the other hand, profit mightily from their long histories of uh, images of island paradise. Um, and this again goes back to the idea that representations of islands as small, empty, isolated, and as places to be like explored, either as a tourist or as a scientist, or to be used as research sites, um, are directly linked to the ways that they've been exploited by colonialism, um, which exacerbates the destruction of their lands, um, the contamination of their waters, um, and also contributes to how ward govern governments ignore indigenous peoples and their consistent calls for political recognition, demilitarization, and urgent climate action. Um, so I feel, so my research, I feel, um, really works to show that literary works by indigenous authors from many, many different islands in the Pacific are linked by the portrayal of the ocean as a place that's central to their homelands and histories, um, and how the ocean can provide avenues for indigenous collaborations that uh, really stand against oppression uh, around the world. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and it's while you were talking, I was kind of thinking about, you know, how often, at least in the US narrative, you know, militarization is thought of as a past event. Um, but we see current and fallout from militarization, you know, nuclear fallout, uh, especially in you know, these oceans. Um, and so I was wondering, you know, of course, there's a whole conglomeration of threats, especially in terms of, you know, climate change, climate crisis. Uh, but I was wondering if there are certain threats that you see as most immediate uh, in the, these areas you study or that you see, you know, the activists and the protest works that you study really addressing um, most centrally. Yeah, um, honestly, I feel like there's so uh, many threats to islands and to coasts in the Pacific. Um, and I really want to like kind of fudge the, the answer by saying I think they're all very immediate. Mm -hmm. That Some of them have been happening for a very long time and yeah. they're still very immediate. Um, so sea level rise, coastal erosion, militarization, changing mm -hmm. weather patterns. Um, that cause more extreme and frequent natural disasters, they're all deeply interconnected. Um, and what I'd maybe argue is that the threat that links them all is the threat of um, the colonial gaze, um, mm -hmm. which, of course, can't be separated from colonial actions. So in the colonial imperial imagination, islands and their coasts are places for tourists or to use for military experiments. Um, you know, uh, for example, when most non-Indigenous people think of Hawaii, they probably think of a beach or uh, perhaps with some palm trees. <laughs> but they probably don't immediately think of Kanaka Maoli peoples and they probably definitely don't think of how the US military 
Terry occupies so much um, Hawaiian space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that's why, just to choose one example, the US tested the atomic bomb in the Marshall Islands. Mm-hmm. And it's also why many other imperial forces from Great Britain and France and so on have also tested their weapons in Pacific Island spaces. Um, and until, uh, you know, we, until the colonial gaze is dismantled, that's going to keep happening um, because people will not be able to adequately address all of those interconnected threats um, in their spaces. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's so interesting. And just thinking about, you know, this podcast is about, you know, California's uh, coastal erosion is just a lot because it was, you know, where I'm looking at, but thinking about, you know, how that colonial gaze affects also how we think about coastal erosion, like you mentioned Hawaii, you know, yeah. tourists are thinking about these wide stretches of beaches, which are then also going to get the attention of, you know, this is where coastal erosion is happening or where we need to fight it. So I'm wondering <laughs> if you see any interesting dynamic with that kind of colonial gaze that you're describing and even how we conceptualize or approach uh, an issue like coastal erosion that mm-hmm. is much more widespread than kind of these small stretches of coastline or even these ways in which we define uh, the phenomenon. Yeah, uh, I think I'll use that question to like kind of segue to like um, how I'm trying to talk about the military's impact in the Pacific. because U.S. militarism in the Pacific is, is like it's deeply entwined with touristic narratives of the Pacific Islands. They both exploit Oceania and um, their indigenous peoples. Um, they're both the rays. Um, and when we think about the Pacific um, and its widespread issues of coastal erosion, widespread issues of um, uh, military impacts on coast too, um, the U.S. military is th- throughout those islands and cities and how it spreads and how it impacts people mm-hmm. and the beings of those islands. Um, so the U.S. military is, I th- think, um, the biggest, uh, what's the word I want to, <laughs> um, channel, I think mm. is the word I want, yeah. um, for massive uh, coastal impacts in the Pacific, so that on a very large scale. Mm-hmm. So the US military, of course, is the world's um, biggest polluter. And um, to bring this to a more specific example here, in the context of West Papua, I think of US militarism in the form of old World War II mun- munitions dumped mm-hmm. along the coast. So Papua was um, actually a major center of US World War II operations though most people in the U.S. tend to be very unfamiliar with Papua and always be like, oh, where's that? Um, And I'm like, guys, you were there. (laughs) The military was there. (laughs) Um, MacArthur was there. Um, When the U.S. 
dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, though, the mm. war was um, suddenly over and US forces, of which there were many, um, across Papua and in other Pacific islands, especially Melanesian ones, such mm. as the Solomon Islands and Vanuatu, they dumped uh, massive amounts of unused munitions. Mm-hmm. Um, it was musicians, it was trucks, it was brand new tires, it was all those kinds of things. And those... Um, those uh, polluting acts are still having major impacts today um, as people accidentally set them off. Um, there was mm. someone in Bougainville Island um, that accidentally set one off when they set a kitchen fire. Um, or um, they're also set off as fishermen use them to blow up coral reefs, as I mm-hmm. described earlier in our conversation. Um, so, in some, um, you know, US militarism in the Pacific has been going on for a really long time. <laughs> And um, just because the US military may leave, physically leave a certain area, doesn't mean that impacts are over. Those impacts continue to replicate again and again, and that cycle needs to be dismantled. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I'm wondering also, you know, I ask a lot of people this uh, toward the end of, you know, our episodes, but Mm -hmm. you write about activists and uh, authors who are mm-hmm. doing current, you know, work on fighting climate change, climate risks. Um, and I guess my question is, you know, where do we go from here? Where, how do we continue to kind of, you know, resist these things that are destroying coastlines and shores and oceans, and also, you know, people who have had long and current ties to these places that are Mm. under threat yeah uh definitely um i I kind of want to start by just pointing to two authors um that kind of draw on the themes that we've been talking on today and then kind of uh you know tie it together in a package at the end (laughs) um because i really want to point people towards is a west Papuan author who i really love um his name's john wadaromi um, and he recently published an English translation of his novel. It's called Angari Tupa, which harvesting the storm. Um, and it tells the story of the devastation of US munitions um, in our contemporary moment. Um, so what I really adore uh, about the way the story is told is, is told from the perspective of a tide pool blenny, it's a, oh, wow. which is a fish like a mud skipper. It can breathe in and out of water. <laughs> mm. um, and through Waromi's fish-eyed lens, um, see what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the novel brings um, storytelling and Papua's history uh, into conversation with processes of waste disposal, fisheries science, military strategy, and the effects of sea extraction. He's um, really providing a long view of the traumas of munitions dumping. And at the same time, it relates uh, Indigenous stories of place and those who live in those places in ways that prioritize multi-being relations. So relations across species. Uh, the Bellini's world is also being developed for mineral extraction and it delineates how the Pacific War or World War II's legacies remain present at scales as small as the tide pool and as large um, as the weather. And basically through his testimonial, the novel shows that we can't understand and address the costs of those leg- legacies if we do not also account for the non-human costs of war of military oppression, resource exploitation, and other forms of environmental violence. Um, 
basically you can't theorize how to clean up pollution and tackle wars after effects. Um, you can't sustainably fish and harvest from the ocean and also uphold indigenous land and sea rights mm -hmm. without accounting for a long view of human relations uh, with more than human beings. Um, and another author that um, I'm ashamed it took me this long into the podcast to bring up, <laughs> but uh, who I really enjoy also is Marshallese activist, Kathy Jitnion-Kajina. Um, and her um, poetic work really refuses, she's an incredible spoken word um, poet, um, who I'm sure you're probably already familiar with, um, but her poetic work refuses narr US narratives of the Marshall Islands as small or inconsequential and instead advocates for demilitarization and climate change action in the Pacific through her poetry that um, continually advocates for the dignity of Marshallese communities and islands. Um, so I feel like her activist work is twofold. It first draws awareness to nuclear devastation wrought by militarization and imperialism in the Pacific. And secondly, she uses her poetry to advocate for action against uh, climate change. So these issues are really entwined for her. Um, I find that when you're reading across um, works by indigenous authors in the Pacific, all these issues um, like militarization, like um, capitalism, uh, like uh, racism and um, sexism, they're very interlinked. Um, and for her, militarism and climate change are both linked by how islands in Oceania have been um, portrayed and through what Peiwa called the strategic forgetting of colonial powers. So <laughs> in saying that, where do we go from here? Read Indigenous thinkers and writers, mm -hmm. foreground their voices and desires, cite them, mm -hmm. and... Um, this podcast in particular has made me think of a quotation from Jitnilka Jina, which I feel really succinctly expresses her philosophy of oceanic practices of um, what I would call care, which stand directly against oceanic practices of capitalism or occupation through other means. Um, so she wrote this quote and um, this quotation in a blog post where she reflects on the impact of COVID-19 in the Marshall Islands um, and she connects um, those impacts to climate change. Uh, so she wrote, these are her words. Those of us knee deep in the work know that there are efforts being made at the technical level to make sure that we recognize how climate change disproportionately affects women, people of color, the sick and disabled, queer communities, youth. Meaningful climate work recognizes the vulnerabilities in the system and seeks to address them. Meaningful climate action doesn't leave anyone behind. Well, I think we should end with that, then. <laughs> that wonderful quote uh, that so, you know, succinctly wraps up all we've been talking about today. So thank you so much, Bonnie, for coming on. And I look forward to, you know, talking more and reading more of these authors that you've talked about today so thank you and your own work <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me many thanks to the Belinsky foundation and the Belinsky fellowship at bodega bay marine lab for providing the funding that made this series possible <laughs>